0: This is Don Sheriff and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast.
1: You are tuned into episode 4.3 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. it's the first day of November. It's pretty hard to believe after spending the last few days in Bozeman, Montana. Frigid temperatures dip near zero degrees Fahrenheit and snowfall has been abundant to the valley floors. As stoked as I am for winter, I do enjoy the changing seasons, especially fall, and kind of feel like I've missed it so far this year. That's right, I'm in Bozeman on the final stretch of the podcast interview tour right now. I spent 10 days in Jackson, Wyoming, where I took a great winter weather forecasting class through the American Avalanche Institute and taught by Jim Woodmansey. I'm definitely recommending this class if you are a snow and weather nerd. It gave me a better understanding of basic weather patterns as well as how to read and interpret weather maps and models a little bit more effectively. Woody's a great teacher and certainly makes the class fun. Check it out. While in Jackson, I conducted some interviews, went to Wysaw, and got to spend some quality time with some darn good people. Thanks, Jackson. You're all right. If you're listening to this as it comes out on November 1st, here's who I'll be interviewing in the coming week. Don Bachman, Jerry Johnson, Kevin Hammonds, with potential tour of the MSU's Sub-Zero Lab, Jordi Hendricks. Andrew Schauer and Doug Richmond I've been working hard to solicit questions from you all the listeners for these people through my Instagram feed if you have questions for them pop me a DM on Instagram or email me at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com I'll do my best to include them in the interview on Instagram and Facebook we are at the avalanche hour big thanks to TAS by MND makers, distributors, and maintainers of Gazex, Obelex, Daisy Bell remote avalanche control systems. They can also set up your operation with avalanche detection systems and comprehensive weather systems. While at Wysaw, I was impressed by Jamie Yont's recap of the impressive March avalanche cycle in Colorado. Avalanches on the historic scale were the norm during this cycle, and it was evident that while much of Colorado was in a state of emergency, these rack systems helped to mitigate the hazards to the highways of Colorado. 10 Barrel has been keeping the thirst of my interview guests quenched this tour with their tasty barley pops. They also have recently come out with some excellent canned cocktails. Make sure to check them out if you see them in the store. I sure do wish I had made it to the Boise Pray for Snow Party. It looked like a blast. If you're in Bend, Oregon, you're in luck because there will be another Pray for Snow Party coming up. Sure to be a blowout. Here's Lucas Walks with a little public service announcement about it.
0: Hey, what's up? My name's Lucas Walks, uh, athlete for 10 barrel
1: brewing, and If you're around, they're going to be showing a ski movie that I worked on with them all winter called Walks This. It's going to be shown at the Bend Brew Pub in Bend, Oregon on November 9th. So if you're around, come hang out, drink a couple beers, and get stoked for the winter. They will also be showing a snowboard film called Hold My Beer featuring Curtis Cizik and Eric Jackson. My guest today has had a big influence on many people throughout the community through education, guiding, and being someone who's always ready to engage in a conversation over a cold one. Don Sheriff probably needs no introduction, but he'll give you an idea of what he's been up to for the better part of the last three decades in the beginning of the interview. We talk with Don about how to use all of our awareness of human factors to make good decisions, how to measure success and failure in avalanche education, his new app called Minter, which is essentially Tinder for mentorship, and he shares some great stories. There's so much more in here. I'll stop talking already, and you can go ahead and listen to a great conversation with Don Sheriff. Don Sheriff, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. Uh, Good to be here. Thanks for the invite, Caleb. Yeah, you bet. I was hoping you could just run us through an introduction of yourself. and I know you have a long resume, so maybe you could run through some of the Highlight
0: reel here. So I had the morning to prep for this. So I did kind of a Harper's index of numbers for you. Spent really the last 29 years leading others in and around avalanche terrain. 23 of those years have been working for AI um, in all around the West at this point. 18 years heli ski guiding and forecasting up in Alaska. 13 years with the National Outdoor Leadership School and running their winter program as well. 11 years as an owner of AAI, and then two years mixed in there with industrial avalanche forecasting and mitigation work up in southeast Alaska. Okay. And for those of
1: our listeners who don't know what AAI is, there's several AAIs out there, so which one are we talking
0: about here? American Avalanche Institute. Uh, I think a year or two, you interviewed Rod Newcomb. He started it back in 74, and then we bought it uh, from him 11 years ago, myself, Don Carpenter, and Sarah Carpenter. All right. And so,
1: John, where did you grow up and, and what do you, what are kind of your first memories of, of experiences with avalanches?
0: Um, like you, I grew up in Maine and uh, going to New Hampshire as a teenager um, was mostly during the summer. Um, through college, I started getting into the Adirondacks and the White Mountains. And then following college, I uh, worked for the Appalachian Mountain Club for three years and that involved construction crew as well as uh, care, caretaking the huts and uh, lots of ice climbing and backcountry thrashing on skis and just uh, got to hang with the uh, Forest River snow rangers up on Mount Washington quite a bit. And that really sparked my interest.
1: All right. And then, and then you migrated
0: west at some point. What did that look like? Uh, I was, was caretaking up at Tux at the Hermit Lake Shelter area for those familiar with it. And uh, I had, saw another good two-foot storm end with rain and that was enough. 1990, I moved out, uh, started working for Knowles, and didn't look back. Nice, uh, it,
1: that that story is kind of similar to some others that I've heard over the years of, of that progression from the Northeast out, especially to the Tetons, it seems like, um, so that's that's quite familiar. Um, how about you were talking about having a nice, relaxing summer um, away from work, and and I think the gears have been grinding a little bit now for for a while for the upcoming season of avalanche education. What are some of the newer offerings from AI
0: this year? Well, the newest one, hot off the presses, um, and almost full, is the Pro Two Continuing Education Course, and this is or basically for level three grads, AFPRO grads who um, took their course a number of years ago, um, at least three years ago now, and want to see what the highest level of American avalanche education has uh, evolved to. So that um, is one evening and three days of, uh, of education. It involves most of the elements that are um, involved in the Pro 2 other than the uh, technical report slash presentation. Um, just time-wise, we couldn't fit that in, and we felt like a lot of the other things would probably have the best bearing or the um, be the most attractive for folks. So that's oriented for snow safety folks at ski areas, as well as guides, um, highway forecasters, whoever took a level three and just kind of wants to brush up or kind of expand their their skill set a bit. It's not evaluated, so it's um, there's no pass fail pressure. It's um, but looking at the list of folks on it this year, I'm really excited for it. There's some um, good hard chargers and really really capable people on it. Awesome.
1: And and those will be offered both in the Tetons and Salt Lake.
0: Yeah, initially our first one's going to be down in the Wasatch, but uh, our plans are to. Have them both in the Wasatch and the Tetons in the coming years awesome that seems like a
1: a great target audience of of whom maybe has not necessarily fallen through the cracks but certainly a needed um benefit to some continuing education there um, Any other offerings or or what else you got going on and and maybe speak about the I believe this is the last year for the bridge
0: exam right that's right and uh <laughs> there's some confusion as to whether it's going to be two or three years um i think there was confusion on everyone's part including ours um, but it looks like this is the final year if you've taken a level two uh course and you want uh equivalency to the pro one basically it would be uh, your ticket to um, at least apply for the pro two in the future um the two day bridge course is that opportunity and it's course is kind of a stretch. It's kind of a two-day exam. And they're, um, I think they're pretty good. We've had good feedback on them, and it's a good opportunity for folks who may not have continued their education to really kind of challenge themselves and bring their skills up to a good standard. So I, I think they're a valid course, but I'm also not that sad to see them go. Any advice for somebody that's, that's about to take the bridge exam to, to be successful? We have pretty extensive online course and videos um, that once you sign up, it gives you a lot of ideas of how to practice, what to practice, and just come in knowing that you can pass all the skills from snow pit uh, where to the beacon test, which is super straightforward. It's just a matter of practicing. Um, Yeah, just start that practice as soon as you sign up and get that material. If you're trying to do it in the last week, it's not gonna feel near as comfortable or as easy, yeah, and I'm sure you'd get more out of it as well with with being prepared going into that
1: um well, those sound like some some great additions to your curriculum, and uh i'm I'm pretty excited to hear about how the pro two continuing ed course
0: goes this season. Thanks. Uh, one thing I'll mention is that we're continuing our affiliation with the National Avalanche School, and that's running this year, actually this week down in, the, in Salt Lake. And uh, what we do is provide a four-day field session, very field-focused, for those people who did the five days of classroom. Um, and then that gives them the PRO-1 certification. That's I. That's one of the best ways to get um, the education. It's a really top-notch program down in Salt Lake, and then just focusing on the fieldwork. Uh, I think that's dynamite. In addition, we're also affiliating with the Association of Pro Patrollers this year. And we're <coughs> continuing our mitigation or ski area focused level one. We have a it's a level one curriculum, but it's oriented towards ski patrols. Um we're doing a bridge course or two with them this year and looking to do pro once with them in the future. Awesome. That
1: sounds like a, another couple of great partnerships there. Um, so Don, we talk a lot about human factors in the backcountry environment, whether it's in a professional setting or a recreational setting. Um, and so I think over the last decade and a half, you probably know better than myself, there's been so much focus on human factors Um, and I'd like to hear your opinion on what that means when the rubber hits the road in the backcountry, kind of how, what makes a difference with decision-making in the field, given our knowledge and awareness
0: of these human factors. For years, it seemed like we were getting just hit with all these things that we needed to be aware of. You got to think of this and you got to think of that, yet you still need to maintain the big picture and situational awareness. All that awareness is overwhelming at points, and it's hard to distill it down to what actually makes us safer. So I gave some thought about what I actually think about in the field and um, what influences my decisions consciously. There's an awful lot below the, the waterline that. I can't control, but um, what I consciously think about in at least the human factor decision-making realm, um, these things stuck out for me. Ian McCammon um, has done a number of talks where he talks about the personal disaster flags, and he related them towards the heuristic traps that he introduced in the early 2000s. Since then, on our courses, we've added things to that, like the seven avalanche dragons that Ken Wiley talks about. And that's, that was published last year in the Avalanche Review. So there's a bunch of different traps and biases and basically foibles of the problem of being human that can get us. So what does that awareness do us? If you filter it down and look at your near misses, your avalanche accidents, um, and look for common themes, those are what Ian calls your personal disaster flags. When you really key into that, then, you know, hey, these, these are the common themes. These are what trip me up. These are the things that I should not look for in a partner, because if we're both commitment oriented, very goal oriented, then... You don't have someone to talk you off the ledge, essentially. They're like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we should dive right in. Have someone who doesn't compound your same weaknesses as well. So I think um, first and foremost, that awareness of PDFs. Choose your partners wisely. Slow down. A beautiful video by Gordon Graham. He says it the best. Slow down. Don't let your, your hurry Push you into terrain that you shouldn't be in. Another thing I learned from Ian was decision making fatigue, and it's real. When I'm working courses, particularly pro courses, once I get past 5 p.m., I'm very tired mentally. I can't make very good decisions. Once I get past 8 p.m., essentially useless. So his solution for that was make your decisions, your hard decisions early. Make them when you're kind of at the top of your game. For some people, this is going to be later in the day. For many of us, it's going to be earlier in the day. But make those critical decisions early and know what questions you want to answer. Don't go out there with, well, we'll see how it is. See how what it is. Figure out, okay, we'll see how the stability of that December drought layer that's now 60 to 80 centimeters down is. And how do we assess that? Oh, it's more than a meter down. We're going to try different tests. Here are the places that we're going to look. Have those questions in your mind before you even step into the field. Finally, a <coughs> I think checklists have been really helpful. And you don't see a lot of pros pulling out a checklist and, and consulting it. But part of becoming a pro is that you've run through a routine So often that that checklist is integrated or integral to your your daily daily routine and movement. Um, I've worked with a lot of heli pilots and some still pull out their checklist card for their uh, pre-flight. Others don't, but they go through the same set routine and they know it to the point where they've memorized it.
1: A lot of what you're saying, Don, kind of reminds me of a talk I believe Sarah gave a few years ago at you saw and maybe elsewhere that was um, titled Recreating Like a Professional, right? And um, when you talk about decision-making fatigue and the idea of making decisions early in the morning in a controlled environment kind of makes me recall guide meetings, right? Maybe you could talk about a bit of, of your experience guiding and how you're making those decisions early in a controlled um,
0: objective environment boy different guide services operate different ways many guide services I believe you work for ruby mountain highly ski and where you're making your run selections in the day without the pressure of clients going higher steeper deeper um, and without having to look at previous tracks and basically making conditions based on what you understand as the the snowpack stability leaving the day yesterday and what's happened overnight. So making those run lists of, these are definitely runs we're gonna ski, these are runs that we might ski or are on standby if if things are looking positive and for these particular questions, then these runs are off limits. That's certainly one way to do it. Um, Some operations, um, Exxon is an example. um, There's very strong resistance to these runs are good, these runs are bad. Um, But what they have is a um, morning forecast where they talk about the avalanche problems and they spend a lot of time addressing mindset. And the mindset actually controls a lot of the run selection. It's left to the guides to um, use all that they know and the prevailing mindset for the day to make their run selections, but it actually works really well. Uh, Other operations, Alaska heli-ski operations that I've been familiar with, are less likely to identify particular runs as they are to talk about terrain features, aspects, and elevations that are standby or off limits. It's when you're going out and working with 40,000 square miles, it becomes a lot harder to say these um, for a big day with three helicopters, these 100 runs are the ones we're going to ski. Sure.
1: Um, so I, I did like how you kind of boiled down this awareness of human factors into some tangible things. So just to kind of recap, you talked about your personal disaster flags and picking a good partner. You talk about decision-making fatigue and being being aware of that and and doing some things tangibly to make the hard decisions early. What what are what are your thoughts on kind of ongoing decision-making fatigue that's kind of cumulative in a professional realm? So you're on your eighth straight day of avalanche mitigation work at the ski resort or Um, you know, your, your 10th day of ski guiding in a row. How do you combat that?
0: That's a very, very real problem. And, um, we all, you know, we remember the big storms that required just 10 days of getting up at three or four in the morning, day after day, and then going to well after dark there. Um, they're grinders, they're amazing in their own regard, but um, it's a lot about simplification as you get tired. Uh, my partner, uh, business partner, Don Carpenter, um, he is in the same boat. He's essentially useless after after eight as well. So he'll do all the uh, easy things at night. He'll pack his lunch for the next day. Um, So that when he's functioning at a higher level in the morning, he can do other things or just get more sleep. Um, We tell people on our pro avalanche courses, try and avoid couch surfing at your friend's place if you come to town to take a course. Because there's such long days that when you're um, up with the latest partiers and then again up with the early people going to work, you're just not going to get much rest. Um, I think it's a self preservation mode when you get into those long cycles of guiding and mitigation work where you simplify and you just basically it's all about you at that point when you're on your personal time. It's like, how can I maximize my sleep, my rest? So, really focusing on that self
1: care when you're out of the avalanche environment, it sounds like.
0: That and taking care of yourself in the field, like it's pretty frequent that a I'll talk to instructors and like, well, I didn't have a bite to eat all day. It's like, well, force yourself. It's it's not so busy that you can at least eat a bar or two and drink some water. So um, set yourself up so you want to eat and drink, bring food that you like, and bring a thermos so that it's um, coffee or tea instead of cold water. Right.
1: So, Don, um, mentorship is a pretty big topic these days, and, um you know a, a recent study done amongst avalanche professionals um found that you were kind of at the top of the list as as some individual's mentor that they that they named as having a big influence on their career um both recreationally and professionally um you can't exactly go down to the mentor store and just kind of peruse the aisle and pick one out um and I think As a community, we have kind of made it a little bit oversimplified to that effect. Um, So I'm kind of wondering what your two cents are on mentorship and coaching um, and how to to develop that relationship. It, It certainly has to come naturally, I'm sure. But wondering what your thoughts are on that.
0: Well, I think you bring up a good point between the difference between coaching and mentorship. And I think coaches by and large are far easier to find. And because they're not quote unquote mentor, it doesn't mean that they're not gonna really help you. So I look at coaches as people who can watch you perform tasks or um, check your knowledge with and they may add tips or tricks or different techniques to help you through that process. Um, It's often coaching is an ongoing thing and they may be adding advice as you're actually doing a task. The same person or other people can provide critique is where you perform a task all the way through and then they look at after you're finished, they can say, Well, did you think of doing it this way? Or why did you choose to do it this way instead of that? Um, Both are valuable. Critiques, more valuable once you're starting to gain some mastery. Mentorship, a good mentor can do both of those things. But they're also looking at kind of the big picture, and they may be able to help you down the career path. I think one of the things that stuck out from Drew Hardesty's interview of was his main mentor was Tom Kimbrough. And they really didn't ski that much together. It was more of a, a relationship that they had drinking whiskey together. But um, Kimbrough is so thoughtful that he could point Drew in directions and point him towards different books and, uh, and be there when Drew needed him. Like that example of when the first fatality happened on one of Drew's Uh, Forecasts. And Kimbrough's reaction was just, I think he faxed it to him in the forecast office, but sent him a quote from the Dalai Lama. So that doesn't fit our typical view of what mentorship is, where you have the mentor side by side and you're out on this long ski tour or you're out on a route. But I think it's um, immeasurably valuable to have that person who's looking at the kind of the big picture. So when we think
1: about mentors, it's almost um, maybe it's it could be helpful to think about that person that you would call after something really devastating happens. You know, if you imagine kind of the worst case scenario and you're needing to
0: reflect on that experience. Who would you call Is that kind of what you're getting at here? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be devastating. It could be just a near miss, but it's like, hey, I blew it today. Mm -hmm. And here's what I think um i did wrong or here's what happened here's what i think i did wrong i did wrong what do you think sure um uh, well it's certainly
1: a a relationship that must come naturally you know unless unless you're volunteering to put together some sort of mentorship tinder program where people could kind of swipe right and left and and find a good match um if only it were that easy right um i'd like to Dive into a listener question that's kind of along the same lines, but um, something new that I'm doing is is posing questions or, or having listeners submit questions for my guests this season. And uh, most of this is on Instagram. And so Wompski asks you, accreditation can outpace experience. Any tips for young professionals seeking this
0: mentorship? Well, I don't know if it's a Mr. or Mrs., but um, at Womsky, here's my advice for you. Um, You know, don't don't try and force it. It's, um, I've had um, a number of mentees over the years and it's often a kind of an organic selection where it's not someone coming up and they're like, will you be my mentor? I've gotten a, a number of emails like, hey, can I get out, go out in the field with you and, and sometimes they'll say yes to that, but often it's more people I'm working with. So don't force it, but um, definitely pursue coaches for sure. It's, hey, I'm gonna go out and do my first test of my route, my first um, snow pit to assess it. Can you, can you watch me or give me some feedback? Um, Russell Hunter had this great quote um, at one point, he said the best ability for young guides is availability. So be um, ready to get out there. If someone says, hey, you want to go check out um, results on this route and then look at snow depths in the start zone, if you can say yes, that's your, your foot in the door. Be really curious. Get out there and check out conditions when they suck. <laughs> you know, if the skiing's not that good. Um, it's not that tempting to get out there. But if you're going out and saying, hey, you know, that breakable crust is actually uh, breaking down, it's faceting out, Um, while other people are like, oh, I have no idea because I'm not going out. That says a lot for your drive, and people recognize that. Um, You know, (coughs) kind of the big Joe Schmoe school of teamwork, um, Joe Schmoe being uh, Doug Richmond at Bridger Bowl, you know always do the worst job first before anyone else you know basically be the person that people want to work with or ski with um and that that really makes you attractive as someone to work with and I did a lot of this um i still i do less of it now, but um investigate avalanches um as particularly ones that involve people where there was um People caught, buried, potentially killed, but get out there and check them out. See what makes made them tick. Um, you know, if you're wondering if someone will be a mentor for you, say, "Hey, I'm going to go out to um, Narnar Bowl and and see if I can get into the crown line and see what the snowpack structure was. See what the actual layer that failed was." Uh, they might be intrigued enough to go to go with you. And one thing I have found. Um, when you're doing those avalanche investigations, is write it all down right away. Scotty Savage did a really good presentation at um, Seesaw a bunch of years ago, the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop, and talked about memory and distinct events that he remembers, other people who were there remember it quite differently, and he got into like how can we remember it so differently when we we're both there and saw the same thing? And he found that in general, the best, most accurate report reporting happens within a day or two of the event. So write it down. I've done a bunch of case studies over the years for the courses that I've that I work. And boy, I've come back to a case study I haven't presented in three or four years. And looked at my notes and the notes reminded me of things that I either didn't remember or remembered incorrectly. So writing it down right away is super important. My last piece of advice on this soapbox, there'll be more to come, um, is keep a journal. And I really encourage students on our pro courses, write down three plus one things a day. So three things that you learned that stood out forces you to tease out on some boring days, hey, was there anything to learn? And then the plus one is, what is that one thing that still confuses me from the day? So I really push our students, hey, what were your three plus one? And if you have a journal of that, that accumulates season to season, look over it occasionally, I think you'll get those pearls of wisdom and, and be able to retain them. Mm. The you know the
1: phrase that comes to mind after hearing you speak about this is kind of commitment to our craft, right? We can't and and I find myself doing this sometimes as I just kind of stumble through the days, right? And and so to go towards it with intention and and commitment is kind of what your your little soapbox there um, made me think about, and I think those are really valid points. So thanks for pointing those out, Don. Next question I have for you is, as an educator, how should we gauge success in avalanche education and how should we measure
0: failure? Um, Thoughts on that? You know, those are tough questions because I I can speak for myself. I don't know that I can speak for the industry at large. Um, So I'll, I'll give you some personal reflections on that. For me, I teach a lot of professional avalanche courses. So I have people that are going on within the industry and I get to see them be snow safety directors. I get to see them to be, be lead guides. I get to hear them at snow and avalanche conferences and ISSWs. And that, that is gratifying to see the next generation um, go beyond what, what I've accomplished or expand upon um, basic things that, that we've learned. And so I I see that on the pro side. I see um, people who are out there day after day who took a a level one from me and um, maybe not haven't pursued any more education, but they're out there um, recreating and having a great day every day that they're out. And that's a success. You know, if they can stay on the top side and enjoy it, that's truly what it's all about. Failure is a different way, different thing. And I think uh, we're going to get into this in a little bit. But uh, students leaving courses overconfident, is uh, it's really scary. And uh, I, I quite worry about that. I also worry about the flip side of that. Students are s- so overwhelmed that they're like, no, I think I'll just stick to the area. This just seems like too much. It's a lot, but you can organize it and you can be thoughtful about it and have a good time out there. Um, So scaring people kind of away from the backcountry is uh, a failure as well, I think, on our parts. So the the thing that hits the hardest and the uh, hardest thing for me to take is when former students die in avalanches. And I've had at this point three or four that I can think of. And, um, you just rack your brain like, what did I tell them anything incorrectly? Did I omit something that could have saved them? And it's, uh, it's a really tough, um, process to go through. And you you can't put it all on your shoulders and you shouldn't. But uh, our job is, as avalanche educators, is to give people tools and to to navigate the backcountry as safely as they can. So, uh, it it hurts really hard, especially when people die on the job.
1: Yeah, certainly a a, a tough topic to kind of grapple with there. Um, let's drill down into kind of this confidence versus competence subject, and um, at R two Ski Fly asks us to do that as well. Um, and he references Grom's latest article in the Avalanche Review. Are we teaching confidence over competence in Avalanche education? And if you if you're listening to this and haven't haven't read this, it's a great read. Um, and I, I really enjoyed hearing Grom's thoughts on this. Um, what are your thoughts on this latest article of of for those who haven't read it, Grom essentially breaks down that that we're teaching students, the wrong things in avalanche education, or, or perhaps we're going about it in the wrong way. Um, and people, like you said, are coming out a little bit too overconfident and not knowing what they don't know.
0: I thought it was a really good article and I agree with Grom on most of it. I definitely take issue with a little bit of it. And, uh, it's, uh, as you say, I think it's a must-read. It's uh, it's written by someone who has picked up the pieces. He's seen the worst of um, avalanches. He's done a lot of body recoveries. And it's it beats you down. And you ha- should question, um, are we going down the right road in avalanche education? One of his main premises is that people are not viewing backcountry unintentionally triggered avalanches as mistakes. And I think Dale Atkins last year at the at Wysaw um, hit to the heart of this matter. So think about this. This is how Dale started his talk. The pilot says, we took off in really sketchy weather conditions, but we made it through fine. How do you feel about that pilot? Now a skier says, we skied in really sketchy avalanche conditions, but we made it through fine. How do you feel about that skier? Chances are you're like, hey, that skier, they pulled it off. But that pilot, what was he thinking, or what was she thinking? Taking off in sketchy weather conditions. We should know better. So that that paradigm difference. I think gets at the heart of the matter of this overconfidence. So not only should you look at your near misses or direct hits um, critically for lessons learned, but what are you gonna do significantly differently in the future to avoid that situation? Really only takes one avalanche to kill you and it could be a really small one in the wrong place. It's, it's a really unforgiving or wicked learning environment. And I think Brom really hits it on the head that we're, we're not taking these near misses seriously enough as a whole. As far as how we present this in avalanche education, it's, um, you know, obviously we spent both within AI, but as the avalanche industry as a whole, a whole lot of time thinking through hey, what do we put into these courses and it's kind of a tough road to hoe any avalanche instructor would say hey a longer course is going to be a better one and there's so much more that we want to present at the basic level level one or the pro one or the pro two there's always more you can do but you need to balance that with time away from work cost of the course and the ability to absorb all that information at the, at one time. So the level three, uh, or sorry, the level one curriculum has evolved over time to be more decision-making focused um, to still include snowpack dynamics and avalanche mechanics, things that Grom was like, well, does that really matter? The thought behind those, um, that information is it's a beginning of a continuum of learning. If you don't have basic awareness of how the snowpack changes and how um, avalanches work, it's gonna be harder to understand what you're seeing in the field, those observations that Grom says, hey, these are the key, the mountains are speaking to you. So that's why it's still included. I agree, class one avalanche data, avalanches occurring, are, you can't beat that for information. But the mountains don't always speak to you in loud tones or even soft tones. Sometimes you go out there and there's no information that it's potentially unstable unless you start digging a hole in the snow. And that's, those are tricky situations. If we don't start people down that process in level one, OK, well, that leaves a big road for people on level twos or pro ones to, well, here's the start of your education in that. I think that's too late, but we do need to prioritize Hey, class one data, collapsing, cracking, avalanching that don't outsmart the avalanche. That's class one data that you have to pay the most attention to those factors. I THINK I LOOKED IT UP, um, GROM SAID IF YOU KEEP YOUR EYES OPEN, THE MOUNTAINS WILL TELL YOU ALL YOU NEED TO KNOW. I WOULD ARGUE THAT THAT'S NOT ALWAYS THE CASE. Um, I REMEMBER ONE RECON that WE WERE DOING IN ALASKA FOR THE HELI SKI SEASON. I'D SPENT THE PREVIOUS WEEK WORKING A LEVEL ONE COURSE AND um, OUT OF THE Santa LODGE AND WE GOT UP TO 4,000 FEET AND THE STABILITY WAS Excellent, and the um, the skiing was delightful. It was amazing. Uh, when the helicopter showed up um, about three days after the course, uh, we flew up to upper elevations. And on the first four runs, we triggered D2 to D2.5 avalanches on buried surface floor that did not exist below 4,000 feet. There were no natural avalanches. Anywhere. So the mountains weren't cooling us in, and our limited travels before we got the helicopter um, didn't reveal that pattern. So without sticking a hole in the snow or approaching the slopes cautiously, um, you may be missing something. So there's, I think I, there's a number of different ways I could justify what we present on level ones. I think the take-home point for me from Grom's competence versus confidence discussion, our uh, article is that we really need to emphasize the consequences of a wrong decision and that it can be potentially fatal the first time you make a mistake.
1: That's interesting to hear you say that take-home because one of my take-homes from his article was that um, our moderately competent backcountry travelers are making the mistake of not analyzing their experiences when nothing bad happens, right? So when they're getting away with it, they don't have the experience depth to realize that they just got lucky or, or did they know they, that they got lucky and that they got away with it? So what are your, um, what are some of you, what's some of your advice as to how people can reflect on that? After a day of skiing or riding,
0: uh, that's really an excellent question. How was your day? Oh, it was great. Nothing happened. <laughs> like, yeah, let's go get a beer. Uh, the, uh, I mean, not every day goes wrong. Like, there are good days out there, and it it gets tiresome to hear of how horrible humans are at decision making, uh, but. There are things to learn, and often you may have come closer to the line than you actually recognize. So the key to that is starting a little backwards. Where were you most exposed today? Where could a potentially um, uh, an avalanche have occurred, or could we have gotten hurt? Okay, did we anticipate getting to that point? Did we get there thoughtfully? Did we recognize that as kind of our crux decision point? And did we, or did we get surprised when we got there? If you were surprised and then just kind of fumbled your way out of it and got lucky, um, at the end of the day, it may be the feeling of, yeah, that was a great day. Skied a lot of good powder. Yeah, it went great. But if you go back to that question, where were we most exposed? We're like, whoa man, we really got surprised at that cliff band. Like it was, um, there wasn't a good route through the choke. We had to climb back out. Um, Nothing happened, but boy, it sure could have gone poorly. I think that's a really good way to approach it is that where were we most exposed? And then work backwards from there. If it was a graceful approach to it, you anticipated it and you, up with good solutions out of it great it sounds like good good decision-making the um thrust of a book i'm reading now called thinking bets talks about resulting and equivalent um decision-making process with outcome and um, we can make poor decisions and have a good outcome we can have a good ski day despite ourselves. Um, or we can make a lot of good decisions, but due to one unforeseen variable, we can get caught. So the results do not always equal the the decision process. So you really need to question that pretty, pretty thoroughly. So what I got from
1: that is that um, to intentionally debrief every day, and um, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I would, I would, expect you to recommend maybe writing this down, especially when it's significant learning.
0: Yeah, that's definitely part of the evening meetings that we do as guides, and that's all chronicled. Um, question is whether anyone looks at it afterwards. But the uh, as far as personal learning goes, at least asking the questions. And uh, one year I tracked um, what Seth Carbonari calls margin, and how wide was my margin throughout the day? I found that the days with the narrowest margin, the ones where I had very little could go wrong before I'd have some sort of mishap or accident, um, were typically ones where I was out solo. And looking back through a season of that, I was like, well, I need to back off a bit of my not necessarily not go solo skiing, but definitely be smarter about my objectives.
1: So a question from uh, a mutual friend, Jake Hutchinson. Jake wants to know what three things have had the biggest impact on how you understand, manage, and or teach about avalanches?
0: Pretty big question there. I could name more than three avalanches themselves that have really shaped my outlook. But I would say actual avalanche events I'll categorize as one thing. There's um, the ongoing saying is um, experience uh, comes from bad judgment. And um, it does to a certain extent. I, I don't recommend that people get caught in avalanches, but boy, the lessons I've taken home from those events—not necessarily ones that I've been caught in, but ones that I've investigated—have um, really, really stuck with me. Another thing is mindset, and that the mindset words really mean something. A couple years ago, we had a really insidious layer called the December drought layer around the Tetons, and I, I have friends in the Wasatch who and say, well, you stop talking about that stupid layer. Um, It really provided uh, a really challenging case study real time. And we had to figure out where we were in dormancy versus activity. It reactivated five times. It was, um, I think I counted it up. It was um, active from formation to the last activity. It was like 117 days. It was just would not go away until it melted essentially. Um, that brings me to basically a uh, a time when I had a pretty uh, lively discussion, if you want to call it that, um, with my uh, business uh, business partners. Uh, we had uh, a and I, another instructor on the Pro two and I had gone into an area that we wanted to do an operations exercise on the upcoming Pro two. And we had figured we had dug a few pits and figured out that we felt good about approaching um, the bottom of this bowl, and so that we could get eyes on all aspects. And we felt like it was a justifiable decision. Uh, My business partners were pointed out, "Hey, Exum Mountain Guides is." And amongst others, are in the entrenchment mindset. They're basically not going into anything that can avalanche at this point. They're just using the uh the milk runs, if you will, because the consequences are so high if you get it wrong. And that didn't sit too well with me because I was like, well, we saw all these different things where we came down, and I really feel like we could do it safely, but the The bottom line is, can you be that confident moving 15 people through that same terrain? Will they not, will they avoid all those um, potential areas where you could push a button that could trigger an avalanche? And that's what the entrenchment mindset is about. It's like you don't, your uncertainty is high, the consequences are through the roof. You need to play it safe. And that, that mindset discussion really woke me up to the fact that it's a really powerful tool. Uh, and then finally, I'd say for me, being really curious and just following weak layers from formation to extinction, I've done talks and papers about the December drought layer, the damalanche layer, the lava or avalanche is spelled backwards because it was so just Backwards as far as conditions went in Alaska for that year. Um, you know, track it. Really, really think hey, what What do you, how much snow or water equivalent is going to reactivate it? When is this going to be out of sight, out of mind? And then track how your guesses pan out. It's called forecasting. Um, and really work hard to backcast and understand what happened. I think. W- Looking at your actual avalanche events, paying attention to what's the appropriate mindset for the day, and being really curious, those are the three things that have really had the biggest impact on how I understand and teach about avalanches.
1: That was very well said,
0: Don. Um, Something that that I'm interested in
1: hearing you talk about briefly or, or not briefly, it's up to you. But is the the disagreement of opinions, which it sounds like you know you have no problem having a disagreeing opinion with with other people that you work with or recreate with, which I think is very important um I'd like to know how you facilitate that discord in a professional setting um certainly applicable to recreationalists as well but how do you how do you manage that discord or or disagreement in guide meetings? and don't spend three hours going down a rabbit hole.
0: I think this will be a good one for you to follow up tomorrow because uh, um, Doug Workman, who I think you are gonna talk with tomorrow is the person who comes to mind when you ask this question. when I think of Doug, I can just picture him saying, that's not true. Or his brother saying, what makes you think that? I really value that that ability to question um, opinions on forecasted stability, um, run selection, all of that. And it's essential to being safe. You need to set up that atmosphere, but it, it is also tough to get called out, especially when you have a time pressure, like we need to get this guide meeting finished so that we can get out and Get the clients who've been sitting still for four or five days, not flying, get them to what they will pay for. So how do you keep that forum for dissent really open, yet manage it time-wise so that it's effective and then manage it in a way so that um, you're not squashing people's opinions? And I think that... Uh, You need to listen, but you need to also recognize when it's basically coming around in a circle and people are reiterating in different words, the same concept. One way I've tried to address that is, here's what I understand is a problem, or why you disagree. Is there anything else to add to that? And then if someone starts Basically going in the loop again and trying to restate. It's like no, we've got that. Is there anything else to this? Um, And at that point um, If you can explain why you think uh, Your proposal or your forecast is still correct Good luck present it Um, or maybe it's time to listen to like okay you're right. Or more commonly, hey, we don't know. Uncertainty is high. We need to back off our objectives. So I think uncertainty is a, is a good way to qualify this. It's like we don't have absolute answers here. Uncertainty pegged right now. We need to keep it simple and back way off. And maybe we can find out more information today through
1: targeted observations to fill in some of the gaps in our
0: knowledge, right? What are the specific questions we have to answer in the field? That should be always be part of the forecast discussion
1: right But I do agree that 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 dissent in in guide meetings and out skiing recreationally is is pretty important, and everybody's voice should be heard absolutely. Don, what are some good some good books that you've read lately concerning concerning? Don, what are some good books that you've read lately concerning team management? You manage instructor teams and guide teams, and um, I'm sure that's a topic that you've
0: read about. You no, know, honestly, what comes to mind is uh, a lot of books that I've read uh, about um, risk management and decision making. But as far as working as a As a team, um, I just read The Captain Class by Sam Walker. And that was an intriguing book. He researched it really well. He looked at basically the winningest teams in history. And uh, some of them may not be what you expect. There's a number, there's a spectrum from uh, women's volleyball to um, a couple of professional football league teams um, being. soccer to us um, and some that are kind of tier two, not in the top 16 of those winningest teams, but the commonality that he found in these 16 winningest teams of all time was uh, that the captains were incredibly effective at motivating people. And it wasn't that they were the necessarily the best players by any means, most often they weren't, um, But they were able to communicate effectively. They were um, what he terms as water carriers. They were happy to support the team. They weren't necessarily scoring the most goals. They weren't um, the flashiest players on the field, but they were supporting others through either passing, um, defending, whatever the case may be. That book um, is intriguing. Some of the Concepts don't really apply to traveling in Avalanche terrain, but some of it just shows really good leadership. So Captain Class by Sam Walker. Give it a read. Nice.
1: Um, another listener
0: question from another mutual friend, Brendan Cronin,
1: wants to know: is heli skiing a true addiction? Thoughts on that?
0: Hell yeah.
1: Yeah, hell yeah. I, I would I would
0: totally agree as well. <laughs> It's a, it's a hard. It. I think I'm uh, gradually going through detox, if you will. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not working two straight months at it up in Alaska anymore. I'm picking and choosing weeks that I can work. Um, it's nice to be in that, that uh, have the ability to pick and choose like that. But boy, I miss this full season where you get to see the snowpack evolve through the whole season. And um people familiar with Alaska, you see the worst of the worst and the best of the best. And you can see it all within eight weeks frequently. Mm-hmm. So it's there's I'm convinced there's no better way to learn about snow and team dynamics and guiding. It's a uh, it's a really tough job that I I can't leave
1: yet. Right. Um sometimes it's hard to Hard to slow down enough
0: when things are moving so fast in the heli ski world, huh? That's the time that you have to. And I, I played this during staff training a couple times for our guides, but that Graham Graham, Grant Graham uh, video that I, I mentioned, um, where it's pretty much the cure to a lot of these high risk, low frequency situations, is slow down. And it's incredibly hard when people are paying thousands of thousands of dollars a day to get out there. But you can't absorb other people's stress. You have to deal with it on the snowpack and mountains terms. And otherwise, you're just um, itching for an accident and there's no going back from accidents. Yeah, very well
1: said, Don. Um, just to, to wrap up our our talk here, I was hoping you could maybe recount a story of a, a time that you've been caught off guard or a close call in the avalanche environment?
0: Well, I don't know that we have time for <laughs> all the lessons I've been um, handed via avalanches, but um, certainly the biggest avalanche I've ever been a part of was my first season heli-ski guiding. And uh, it was towards the end of the season, It's April 28th, 2001. Um, I remember that because I wrote it down, and uh, I've actually talked about it quite a bit on courses. But it was um, fit a pattern that um, I think started before the heli ski season started because we came in and saw a filled in crown on Pyramid, and. Mid-season we had a natural avalanche that went scoured to glacier ice on Happy Top, North Face, Um, but we went another four weeks or so with none of this deep slab activity. Um, We had shallower instabilities that came and went and overall it was an amazing season. It blew my mind and to date, I think it was the best coverage I've seen in the 18 years that I've got right up there. So um, yeah, we're in our last week, I had a group of the owner's best friends and I was, um, we had had a great day of skiing and we were finishing up and we skied uh, this run called uh, the Southeast Shoulder of Happy Top, which is one of the taller peaks in the North, North circuit and I had forgotten my client radio I was changing batteries on that. Left it on the front seat of the helicopter. Um, got out, realized that happened, but knew there was a group behind me. So I radioed Rob Hess and said, "Hey, I left the radio on the love seat. Can you grab that? I'll grab it from you when you land." So I sent my clients down to a point where the slope angle over, broke over from 30 degrees to high 40s or so. Um, It was a collection point that four other groups had used through the day, including one group about half an hour before us. And they skied to that point safely. I got the radio from Rob when he arrived, and I skied down to my group. When I was about six feet away from him, a crown very slowly opened between two of the four of them. And one person was able to essentially sidestep from the moving slab onto the um, existing crown into safety. One person scrambled, uh, seemed like he was kind of on hands and skis about six feet to get onto the bed surface as this thing slowly and quietly pulled out. And that avalanche ran a thousand vertical feet down into the valley and it was, um amazingly quiet for such a large avalanche. It ended up being triggered um, where the group was, was about 70 centimeters deep, but the average crown depth was between three and four meters deep. And uh, the main thing about that avalanche was I would not have predicted it. And I don't think I still would be able to predict it. You know, there are things, there are contributory factors. There was Minor earthquake activity in the morning, but none of us ever felt that. There was the fact that the bergschrons and the glaciers were seemingly opening, so maybe it was losing some basal support that way. Maybe it was getting some back radiated heat from the opposite side of the cirque um, and warming up that day, but it was still cold powder. You know, there are a bunch of things in hindsight that might be contributory factors, but that's not an avalanche that I don't. Feel like I could predict even to this day. That made me realize that you need some margin. You can't predict all the avalanches, no matter how good a forecaster you are. And that that was eye opening for sure. Didn't convince me not to heli ski anymore, but probably should have. And so so that took out some tracks below that you guys
1: had previously skied.
0: Yeah. Um, about 25 skiers worth of tracks from that
1: very day. Wow. Sounds like you're you're still somewhat scratching your head over
0: that one. So, yeah, like you said, margins. And. Uh... Yeah, just realize that you can't predict them all. It's uh, you'd like to think so. We learn more and more about avalanche mechanics every year. But, you know, going back to what Grom was saying, be observant. Be cautious, realize it only takes one. Right. Maybe trust that uncertainty. Yeah, for sure. Well, Don, I
1: appreciate you taking the time today to sit down and, and share with the podcast and the community. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and and I hope you have a nice, fun, safe winter, filled with lots of education and, and some skiing.
0: spring out there. Yep, that's the plan. Probably back to Alaska in April and then, uh, Iceland in May. So yeah, the addiction continues. Awesome. We'll take care and, uh, and have a great winter. Cheers, man. Thanks, Gail.
1: I sure do hope you enjoyed that episode. Unfortunately, there was some electrical interference that I hope wasn't too distracting for you. There are trade-offs to everything in life, and for me, to conduct in-person interviews takes travel and finding creative, quiet spaces to conduct the interviews. Unfortunately, they aren't always perfect. But as you listen to our podcast, think of it as that high-dollar kombucha that you probably drink. You know it's high-quality, but still, there's all that organic scuzz in the bottom. Yeah, it's like that. Now go wash your mouth out with a 10-barrel beer or cocktail. Big thanks to Mike T, who creates the artwork for the show, You Demand T. Our music today was performed by Anatech, with the tracks Square One in the start of the show and Puddle Hoppin' in the end. These tracks are courteous of Free Music Archive and made possible by the Creative Commons license. Please rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Make sure to follow us on the socials. We are at The Avalanche Hour. Submit your questions for upcoming guests. Do it now. Do it right now. If you want to see a lineup, you can find it on the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. While you're there, pick up a sweet new trucker hat or ski strap to help support the show. We'll probably throw in some, some canned koozies if you make an order. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.